Hey everybody, Zach here from Now You Know. I'm really fortunate today to be with Mark DeBong. He's a senior attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council, the NRDC. I'll just refer to it as that since I'm That's probably not going to remember. Thanks, Zach. Um, thanks for being here. It's great to be here. So, Mark, I guess first thing I think our viewers want to know is I think everyone's heard of the NRDC. It's mm -hmm. a term we've heard of. Yeah. But I don't think many people know much about it. Can you give us like a, in a nutshell? What you guys yeah, think? we're an organization that was founded uh, primarily to advocate for environmental uh, work uh, and to, you know, work through the courts, work through the legislative system, work, you know, through the system to kind of create better environmental outcomes, hold uh, government agencies like the EPA uh, to their responsibilities uh, and to kind of fight back against some corporate polluters. Um, since since we started out, um, you know, in cases against you know the likes of Chevron, um, we've expanded into you know energy work, um, into biodiversity work, into work supporting uh, pollinators like bees, um, and into uh, equity um, and uh, environmental justice work. So, get if I'm right, you guys do kind of two major things. You're working on legislative, so you're working on getting laws to be better for the environment or for EVs or whatever for bees, but you're also um, very powerful in that you can sue, I mean, using the courts That's to right. get things done, which I think a lot of times gets more attention, you know, gets gets a politician or a, a, an agency's attention when it's like, hey, do what you're supposed to or we're going to sue you. Uh, can you tell us, like, what side do you like working on? Do you, is it kind of 50-50? Um, I think as an organization, um, we're, you know, we'll do what needs to be done, right? Like, it's like picking your favorite utensil. Like, do I like the fork better or do I like the spoon? Um, you just pick what's whatever more appropriate for the particular set you have. In some cases, you know, we have a lot of uh, other organizations, a lot of other folks working on it, who've done good work either at the legislative angle, and now we need to make sure that the enforcement um, is there. So we, you know, we we work judicially uh, through the court systems to make sure that happens. Um, in other cases, you know, we see that there's a gap, and we want to kind of expand. Um, the environmental benefits um, that are out there. And so we work legislatively um, or through gubernatorial partnership uh, to make kind of these other policies uh, enact. I think what it comes down to it is what's the tool that we need to get the job done so that the air is cleaner, the water is cleaner, and so our kids, our grandkids, um, for the future generations that they've got uh, a pretty good earth to live in. So what are some things that you guys are working on now? Can you share with us what uh, some of your active uh, campaigns are? Um, there's quite a few uh, out there right now. I work in clean vehicles and fuels, so right up market. our alley. That's right up, right <laughs> up your alley, right. Ah, literally an alley. That's good. We're working on, you know, legislative policies that advance uh, the availability of clean transportation, both cars, transit, etc., for everybody. And uh, we are also uh, helping utilities or pressuring utilities to enact programs that would do the same thing, create cleaner air, cleaner water, um, a cleaner electric grid um, so that folks can rely on electricity that's you know more resilient, um, that increases our energy independence um, and uh, and also leads to, uh, to better uh, air uh, and fewer emissions. Now, how does it work? If people want to support your organization, I mean, obviously they can become, I assume, a member and support you guys financially. Um, but what else would you say to people who are out there and they're watching and they're like, okay, this is good, I want to help. Um, what, how, how should most people get into, not politics, but how should they affect change? So I'll answer that question in two parts. The first is if you want to get involved with NRDC, go online, sign up for our action alerts. Like we tend to send out 
alerts to let people know like stuff that's coming up, especially depending on you know their, your interests and the kinds of work you'd like to see happen. Um, you know, of course, we always are looking for you know financial support, um, and we're also looking for folks who are willing to you know act when we have uh, action to be taken. Um, in Illinois recently, uh, we had a pretty effective lobby day at Springfield to support. Um, uh, legislation called uh, the Clean Energy Jobs Act had a lot of supporters out there both from our organization um, and from others and so that was a pretty um, a pretty enjoyable time the main thing is you know sign up and you know everything else will come from there so that's one so that's about NRDC in particular when it comes to environmental legislation you know I think I think there's basically four things we want to make sure we all do I do these myself which is one you know make sure you you know what's going on. You know, you don't have to be an expert in it, but, you know, read a few articles. Like, don't just rely on the easy answer or the, you know, the short, uh, the short answer. Um, you know, look at different sources, some you agree with, some you don't agree with. Get yourself informed. You know, we have a series of blogs that are available through NRDC. There's a bunch of other good ones out there uh, right now. Second, make sure you get involved with your local politicians. I mean, not just local in terms of, like, state level, city council level. Uh, but also the federal level, your your congressman or woman and uh, and your senators. Your voice actually matters a lot there, and it matters not just in terms of like saying like, hey, don't do that thing, um, but your positive voice matters too. If you like something a legislator did, it, reach out to them. Like it's it's really effective. Um, and I think the uh, the last thing is you know have civil discussions with your friends and family. The democracy is made better when we have you know civil informed discussions amongst people of goodwill, and so that's something we'd like to see you know, happen. That's great advice. I mean, it sounds like something all of us can, can do. I know that a lot of times I don't feel like doing it because it feels like it's not going to work, but it's, it's really reassuring to hear from someone who's in the field yeah. that my voice actually does resonate with my elected officials. You know, this, if I walk up to someone and I say like, you know, EVs are good because A, B, and C, like, you know, they don't know me from Adam. Maybe that's, maybe I'm an influential voice or not, but people who know you and trust you you know, maybe you've, maybe you've got their ear and they're more willing to listen. Now, I do want to mention that you've had many really cool jobs in the past we were talking about, but one of them uh, that I'm sure our viewers would be interested in is that you used to work for Tesla. Um, can you I tell did. us a bit about what you used to do for them? Yeah, as part of the, uh, the supercharging team, we built uh, superchargers uh, across the country. I, my region that I was working uh, with was, uh, was the Midwest the Northern Midwest. Um, for those of you who don't know, probably a lot of your viewers know this, but there are different types of charge uh, that you can get. There's the, you know, trickle charge. Where you just plug your electric vehicle into the wall like like you plug anything else in. And it's a pretty low charge. It takes like 12 hours, 10, 12, 14, 16 hours, depending on the vehicle and the kind of plug you've got. There's level two charging, which is what you see that people tend to install in their garages or you see at workplaces. It takes four, six, eight hours to charge up completely. Um, and there's the upper level, which are the superchargers. You see these near highways, often in rest areas. Those will charge up a car, you know, 80% or more you know, in 20, 30 minutes, depending on condition. So uh, we were building those out. Now, when you were doing this, it was kind of in the early days of the supercharger network. Um, were businesses open to having superchargers in their parking lot or did they even know what you guys were doing? Well, you know, in, in part because, you know, when I started, um, a lot of my predecessors had already done a lot of good work. Um, and so I think um, the name was out there, the Tesla name has cachet. Mm -hmm. Um, so they knew of us. If they may not have known a lot about electric vehicles, electric vehicle charging, but they knew um, of the company. You had different folks that were different levels of supportive. I'd say you, you could break them down to three levels. One, 
100% supportive, you know, let's build charging stations here. Two, get the heck off my property. Um, I'm about to release the dogs. Um, and then three, I don't really understand what's going on here, but I would like the kind of folks who drive electric vehicles to stop here and partake of my services, whether that's shopping um, or you know, watching a movie or whatever it might be. Now, it's kind of cool that you have this experience from working at Tesla. Now you're working you know, nationwide on policy to do with EVs. Yeah. Um, where do you see EVs happening in the next 5, 10, 15 years? I mean, on this channel, we predict a lot about a lot of things, but it'd be great to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to admit I'm probably biased a little bit from, from watching your shows ahead of time. So I'm going to try not to like be pandering. I'm going to just say, I think you, you're right about everything. And maybe I'll even curse at you a little bit. Uh, just to make, just to prove I have credibility. When it comes down to it, if you look at the direction that not just the U.S. transportation market is going, but the global market is going, is that clean technology, emission-free technology is coming. You're not going to see many vehicles, you know, down the road that have tailpipes on them because it doesn't make sense economically, it doesn't make sense environmentally, uh, and it doesn't make sense in terms of public policy. The question we've got here, and I say this as an American, is do the policies we enact support the kinds of outcomes we want to see in the United States of America? You know, if you, you know, I think we're the, we're, we agree that electric vehicles, clean vehicles are the future, but the question is, where are those vehicles going to be made? Are they going, are those charging stations going to be built in equitable places? Yeah, I, I think everyone who's watching this, your kids, your grandkids, your great grandkids, they're all going to be driving. If they're driving, they're going to be driving electric vehicles um, or be riding in them. The question is, are they, are those vehicles going to be made, you know, in Troy or Dearborn, um, or are they going to be made in Stuttgart or Chongqing? You know, the, the decisions we make today will affect that. It will also affect how that rollout will be distributed in terms of equity. Right now, the negative effects of air pollution, the kinds of stuff that comes out of tailpipes, the negative effects are felt most acutely by poorer communities and communities of color. If we do things right, if we enact good policies and get the kind of partners on board that we all want, you know, we can make sure that those communities have a voice and a say in the way the infrastructure for electric vehicles is built, where it's built, um, and how it's built. That's a really interesting point because um, there's a lot of people in this country, I think, who don't want to really have a discussion about EVs. They don't know about them. They don't want to know about them. Um, and what you're kind of saying, it sounds like, is you may not want to talk about this, but if we don't have these discussions, then there are other smart people in the world who do know what's going on and they're going to build their factories somewhere else. Yeah. And we want to make sure those factories not only are here for, you know, nationalistic jingoistic reasons like we want, you know, America is um, has a lot of skilled labor, uh, like knowledgeable folks that can help build these vehicles. Uh, so we want them here so that those jobs stay here. We also want to make sure that, you know, when the when those things are being built, they're being built with the same like labor standards um, and, and justice standards that we hope to have um, in the United States. So, you know, to get to your question, you know, these smart folks that are everywhere, these their opportunities for electric vehicles aren't just local; they're also global. Um, you know, the, when you look at other markets, Europe, China, India, those places are going to be purchasing vehicles, and I think for a lot of us. You know, we'd rather they purchase vehicles from companies that employ our friends and family, folks near us. Now, we were talking earlier, and you mentioned that uh, there's basically federal policy that there's not going to be electric chargers on uh, federal roads, federal highways. Yeah. Um, and that's 
surprise me because I've been talking about nothing but electric cars for years and that hadn't really seeped into my brain yet. And it, sh it made me angry when I heard it. Um, wait, what's going on here? Like, what, why is this happening? Well, well right now, the, uh, the federal rules are that um, electric charging stations can't be built um, in rest areas along um, federal U.S. interstates. So folks probably know this, but there's different levels of highways. There's state highways, uh, U.S. highways, federal uh, interstate highways. Right now, the interstate, which is the largest network um, out there, it's the fact that you can't build a charging station there, right? You can, you can build a candy bar machine. You can build a, uh, you know, pop machine there. Uh, pardon me, soda. Um, we're in the soda part of the yeah, world. We're, yeah. we're in the soda part. <laughs> um, we, uh, you know, that... That hampers the usefulness uh, for everybody. It's one example of a number of policies that are that that are designed not to benefit the normal citizens, but that could be. Like if we, you know, if we updated it. The, in a lot of cases, when you have new technology, the law catches up to the technology, and I think that's one case. So, do you think this is just that case where the law hasn't, you know, oh, we didn't know about electric vehicles, or do you think it's something a little bit more sinister, where you know, big auto, big oil, where it's like. Let's keep EVs off the roads. I think it's a little bit of both. Like, depending on whether I'm feeling like a pessimist or an optimist that day, um, you'll, find me, you'll find me switch back and forth. Um, and what probably happens is, because of the number of stakeholders involved in any public policy, it's probably a little bit of both. There's probably some stakeholders who don't know, some stakeholders who don't, I don't like EVs, and some stakeholders who are unsure and, or have gotten the wrong information about them. I think you know, we've talked you know, a few times, you and I have talked before, that you know, there's a lot of people are operating off old information. Not that the information was bad or they're bad people, but they're operating off old information. So if you look up the specs of an electric vehicle from 2011, it's going to look real different than the specs from 2019, right? If you look up what I could download to my phone in 2011, it's real different from what I could download to my phone in 2019. It's one of the challenges that the technology is moving so quickly, the opportunities are moving so quickly uh, that it's challenged. It sounds for us as like human beings to keep up with it. And then you have a system, legislative, judicial, uh, regulatory system that takes a long time to catch up. So in your day-to-day -day work, uh, is there a victory that you can think of recently that you've been like, yes, I'm going to go to bed sleeping well tonight because I won? Uh, there's a few out there. And I think, you know, I try not to think about these as as I won or I lost because it, it's a, it's a never-ending never grind. Uh, That's a great way to think about it. it. I mean, it's what it is. Like, I don't know if the, any Star Trek The Next Generation fans here, but like the, you know, the last episode, all good things is, you know, it never really ends, John Luke. Like you, you've always got, you've got to pick your feet up and, and move them the next day too. So, um, but I think some, well, I'll call save points along the way are, uh, you know, we've, we've, there's been a few good announcements. Um, Governor Waltz in Minnesota has announced um, that they would be adhering to the California Clean Car Standard. Um, and it, it will be starting the process for rulemaking um, to try and get that done, which I think is great. Um, I just stop I, you there for a second. So for viewers who are a little bit unclear on that, basically California kind of um, has a new standard for the country because our EPA at the moment is uh, under uh, Administrator Wheeler yeah. is not really, in my opinion, doing what an EPA should be doing, protecting the environment. California and a few other states, what uh, like 13 other states, yeah. the CARB states, um, have a stricter emission standard. Can That's you right. tell us a bit about like why sure. it's important that he's joining them? Sure. Now, I, I want to say, too, it's not even new. You know, the Clean, Ca the Cl the Clean Air Act um, is decades old. And on, under the act passed by Congress and signed by the president, California has the ability to regulate its own air quality 
standards um, and uh, under a portion of the Clean Air Act, Section 177, other states can sign on to that higher standard. Um, in part, it was done, and it's more complex than this, but you can think of it as it was done because the smog issue in California at the time was really bad. So, you know, California needs to take extra steps to do it. Um, and so the law itself carved out an exception for California and any of its buddies states that want to join in um, to regulate emissions um, at a tighter level. Um, and so uh, California has that ability to do so. In a lot of the history, California sets a standard because it's so large and so influential, other states join in and manufacturers work to adhere to California standards. And it's created a lot of really good innovation. So the catalytic converter, which I think a lot of people are familiar with, is a direct result of California standards that but for California's increased ability to, uh, to regulate, um, independently regulate um, those emissions, uh, we would have catalytic converters. So interesting. yeah, so thank you, California. Uh, thank you, California. But that's one of the things that California is able to do and other states are, are able to sign on to. California over time um, has been able to innovate and restructure, you know, change of the times and other states have been able to, uh, to sign into California's system there. The, the recent announcement out of Minnesota is that Minnesota will adhere to uh, California standards on the availability of zero emission vehicles as well as some other things. Um, and so they've started the rulemaking process. So tell our viewers a little bit about how it does work at the state level. So like, let's say in Minnesota, you're trying to get them to sign on to, you know, the California's clean air um, standards. Um, I assume that there's hearings and uh, typically at hearings, I think most people here just do not want to have anything to do with that. Like, yeah. but. Can regular citizens be involved in a hearing like that where, where state legislators want to hear from the people? Yeah, yes, there's a, actually there's a lot of public comment uh, available out there. Like oftentimes uh, there is, you know, request for comments. Um, Minnesota's is open right now um, as of today, uh, December 3rd. Um, but there's, you can always comment, um, you can always write letters to your legislators. Their job is to represent us and so Getting our feedback, I think, is important. Do, does it does it mean anything? Like um, if I write a letter or if I send an email or a phone call? I think it does. And I think it means something both at the small scale, at the precise scale, and in aggregate. So if you're from a you know, if you're from a state legislative district, your legislator, you know, your rep or whatever it might be called in your state, doesn't have that many folks writing in, right? Like it's the let's get the internet. Uh, thing, right? For every one person that creates content, there'll be, you know, 10 people that will comment on it and 100 people that will view it. Um, and so, like, you know, the, there's very few folks that are actually making uh, input available to their representatives. And so I think that matters a lot. I think it also matters uh, to, uh, to make sure that not only your representatives, uh, but that agencies like you know, the public commissions or whatever other agencies are available in your state, hear from you during those comment periods. So you could look that up. A great, you know, good, you know, good resources uh, to look up who the environmental groups in your state are. NRDC is active in a lot of states. You can always look us up um, and, um, and proceed from there. It is easy to convince yourself sometimes that your voice doesn't matter. But then in hindsight, I don't know how many times you've seen this, you've seen like this vote went down to you know, one or two votes, right? Whether it's at the legislative level or at the popular elected level. Like your voice matters. You don't always get to pick when it will matter. So the best thing to do is to, you know, make sure to exercise your voice. So how about some, some fights that aren't going so well? Um, I think 
you know, if I'm being honest, like the when you're under the the presidential administration we're under, there's a you have a lot of you have a lot of places where you have to address issues because it's not just at the national level, the presidential level. At the state level too, you have a lot of issues um, that you have to deal with. So one of the things that I think we'd like to see addressed is the amount of taxation on electric vehicles per year for their registration fees is really excessively high. Uh, you know, ostensibly it's to fund the roads and you know, we all want to fund the roads, but there are better ways to fund the roads. And unfortunately in, in several states, uh, there's been a couple of negative um, decisions that have been made, le legislative uh, and uh, gubernatorial decisions that have been made. For example, in Ohio, um, there's a $200 a year fee on electric vehicles, which is, you know, given how much the average EV drives on the roads and how much gasoline they would use if you converted how much energy they use to the equivalent amount of gasoline, um, that's, it's multiple, multiple times uh, the amount of uh, taxation uh, that they use. So, uh, you know, to draw an analogy, like if you, if you bought a candy bar, uh, you bought the candy bar for a buck, um, and for the privilege of using the store, the tax was a dollar seventy. Um, that's kind of what it's like when it comes to the amount of energy used versus the amount of uh, taxation that's levied on you. Now, again, it's not one for one, um, but there are you know that's that's a place where we'd like to correct it. Um, there are opportunities out there. There are good plans to fund the roads and make sure that um, that the roads are being built and the people who maintain the infrastructure, which is what we want, um, will be supported financially um, by the states. Uh, it's just that the current crop of EV fees is not really a good way to do it. Why do we have such an antiquated, stupid, I mean, in my opinion, the gas tax is kind of a stupid system. It doesn't tax based on anything other than putting this fuel in your tank. Yeah. Um, and, it, and if it did work, then we would have been raising it proportionally to pay for the roads, which we haven't done because yeah. no one wants, no politician wants to touch that tax. Um, so we have this broken system and that's one of the biggest questions we get on the show is like, well, if EVs do take off, then we're never going to be able to pay for the roads because EVs don't use gas. Yeah. And it's like, well, we're not, you know we're not stuck with that system, right? Yeah. But why are we stuck with that system? Why are so many politicians not proposing new plans? Or are they? I mean, there's a, there are some that are out there. It's hard. You know, if you, if, you're, if you have a revenue stream, like a gasoline tax, like it's hard to tween yourself off of it, right? right? Like there is, right now, there's a bowl of uh, Reese's peanut butter cups um, in my house that's left over from Halloween uh, because we bought this enormous bag. Um, and it's really hard to get myself to stop eating these peanut butter cups. So that's it's the gas there. tax. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I know it's bad for me, right? Um, and that's the gas tax. Or at least that's relying on that system of road funding. Um, you know, we... So, so what's a better system? Um, there's a few better systems out there. There's uh, a few that have been suggested that looks at overall vehicle miles traveled. Um, there's a few out there that, uh, that just correct downward the amount of electric vehicle um, taxes that are levied every year. You know, kind of our idealized system is one that looks at the overall cost of uh, a fuel. So that's across different energy types, whether it's battery uh, or gasoline or uh, biofuels or you know, hydrogen fuel cells. It looks at across all of them, looks at the overall energy consumption and looks at the amount needed to fund the roads and just ties them together um, in year one and in the next year, if the amount of fuel used uh, goes up, then the amount charged uh, per unit fuel goes down. Um, and vice versa, if it goes down, the amount charged goes up. Um, and the other part of it is that it 
tracks to inflation. So if inflation goes up, you know, 1%, then the amount charged goes up. 1%. But what frustrates me is that these systems don't seem to address the bigger uh, issue, which is that out of a tailpipe of an ice car comes pollution, which hurts human health, hurts environmental health, and no one seems to want to address that at the moment. Why is that? We've been conditioned to accept some of the external costs that, uh, that this stuff has made uh, as just part of doing business. So when, you know, when a vehicle puts out a bunch of schmutz into the air, uh, we accept the kind of damage to lungs that, that creates. We accept the increased asthma rates uh, for people in poor communities that this creates without feeling the need to like tell the people who did it that they have to, to pick it up. And when we talk about wanting to really relate the costs, the, the cost per unit fuel, when it's, when it's fossil fuels, should go up uh, because of that. But it's tough too because the, um, you know, gasoline taxes are regressive. Like who do they hit? They hit, you know, they hit some big companies, um, but they also hit like folks who are just trying to get to work, right? And, you know, our cities aren't always laid out such that if you are lower income, you can get to your job, you know, by public transit um, or by walking or bike, which is more ideal. Sometimes, you know, some of us who are, you know, who have the most challenging commutes are the ones who have the least economic resources to draw on. So, you know, I know guys who have to tra you know, travel 30, 40 miles a day because they live in a place that they can afford and then they have to get to where they live. And, you know, and for those folks, increased gas tax feels much more painful um, than some others. So, you know, I, I'd like to see the true costs of gasoline reflected in the amount we tax those. Um, but there's a few other places where, where the damage is, is also disproportionate. If you look at the amount like a Nissan Leaf or a Chevy Volt, which are pretty light cars, how much damage they do over the 12,000 miles uh, they drive uh, a year, 9,000 miles they drive a year, whatever it might be, it's relatively light. But if you look at you know, a heavy truck or a, a semi, it's really high because the, uh, the damage to road scales uh, geometrically with, uh, with the weight of the vehicle. Now that's that's tough too because you know we don't have we don't haven't normalized the idea that we should charge vehicles by weight but we don't have that system for cars it would be we, so easy to do i mean we know the gross vehicle weight of almost every of every car but we don't want to factor it in again going back to your point of i think we don't want to mess with this bowl of money and system that we have like it's just yeah. don't want to futz with that yeah and it's and it's one of those cases where you know the, when you're looking at creative solutions um, it's tougher and tougher to to advance them because there's these the the kind of folks that are invested in the older solution or who would be disproportionately harmed by the new one, like you know sometimes you can't predict like who that is. Like you jump up like oh holy moly like that's you know that's a small vehicle owner or that's a small business owner um, and she's you know her small truck fleet is going to be the one that is the one that's disproportionately affected by it and that's and and that's. And that's tougher to do. It's why I think people getting involved in making their voice heard is really important so that the conventional wisdom is not the only wisdom well, that's heard. I want to get to that point. So if you watch regular news programs, yeah. you don't hear about any of the things we're discussing. This is not doesn't fit into weather, sports, and you know what happened to a dog getting stuck you know, in a fence. Yeah. Where can people go to find out the kind of things that you're doing every day so that they can be actually educated and involved? For us, NRDC, uh, we have a series of blogs. So if you, if you Google electric vehicles, blog NRDC, like a bunch of blogs will crop up some of mine, 
some of my colleagues. Um, so that's that's an easy way to go about it. But there's there's quite a few other places to go. Like you, you know, you you cover a lot here. Uh, well, and, and to that point, yeah. I think we'd like to kind of form more of a partnership where you can give us more information about what's going on so that we can tell that story. Because I guess that goes to my next question, which is when I hear blog, yeah. I go, oh, that's a lot of work. Yeah. Like I got to read a blog. I want to get it in a real nice, quick 30 second bite sized yeah. chunk that I can understand. Are these issues the kind of things that I can be fed in 30 seconds? Uh, yeah, I think yeah. so. And I think that 30 second thing, it's not a negative bite. Like it's important to have an overview. You know, if you've ever read like a scientific paper, and there's, you know, there, there's a lot to digest, but there's always an abstract at the beginning, like five, six sentences. Like it's important to have that bite-sized bit. So I think having that available uh, could be very, very uh, useful. What I really love about NRDC, groups like Earth Justice, is that you guys are our attorneys. Yeah. I mean, without you guys, we we don't know how we don't know how the laws work. I mean, the average citizen, we we learn some stuff in civics, yeah. but uh, that's about it. You guys actually understand what laws are being broken and which agencies are supposed to be doing something they're not. Yeah. Can you kind of talk to that a little bit about what it's like to be the lawyer for a bigger group of people? The amount of information that's available out there is enormous. And so we're all kind of shepherds for each other in terms of that information. You know, For those of us who are lawyers uh, or those are from organizations like NRDC, you know, part of what we need to do is make sure that we make that information available in a manageable form for other folks. You know, when I go to, you know, when I go to, like recently we had HVAC work done in my house. I've never worked on HVAC, right? Our HVAC guy was great. Like he walked us through, you know, our options. Like, oh, here's, you know, here's the kind of heat furnace you can have. Here's an electric furnace, here's a gas furnace, you know, and, and he was great. And he walked us through those issues. I think that's, for us as attorneys, that's part of what, you know, we want to be able uh, to get across for those of us. Um, in media like you are, for those of us in, you know, in legal uh, work like I am, part of our responsibility is to present that to everybody, um, not because, you know, we're, we have some elite priesthood that understands everything, but just because we can't all know everything about everything. We have to rely on my HVAC guy to tell me about that. Like, we have to rely on lawyers. Um, and newscasters and media folks to like disseminate information, hopefully in an honest um, and substantively satisfying way. I have a question about how you feel like government is moving now compared to just a few years ago, because I feel like right now we have a very broken system. Do you think that the system was always broken and it's just feeling more broken to me now? Or do you think that it has gotten more broken? I mean, are you able to actually do your job within the system now? Or is it kind of so broken that you need to wait until it's fixed again? I think it's neither. I think human institutions, human systems, are in a constant state of breaking. Um, and one of the things you have to do every year, every session, every four years, whatever it might be, is to ask what has broken the most um, and how can we fix it so that we can keep moving. Sometimes all you need to do is slap a little duct tape and piano wire on it and that's enough. Sometimes it requires swapping out you know, an engine Right, just draw a car analogy. Um, and I think um, at the moment, one of the big things we have to do is, is swap out the current you know, destructive philosophy uh, that we've got about the environment. This really consumptive, locust over the wheat fields kind of approach that we have 
towards using our natural resources um, and uh, and move towards one of stewardship. And so that's one where like a wholesale swap um, is probably combined. But the question is like, how do you work in it in Heisenberg's uncertainty principle? If you monitor like a subatomic particle, if you know its speed, you don't really know where it is. If you know where it is, you don't really know how fast it's going. Like you can't really know both bits of information about a subatomic particle at the same time. So you do your best to, to deal with the gap of information you have. And I think in our systems, it's the same thing. We may know how to get to you know, this particular goal set, but we may not know, you know, that, you know that we've got to wholesale remake the system that created it at the same time, and it's a little bit of both. You have to be in both constructive and destructive mode um, and I mean that in a, in a positive way um, when it comes to the you know, systems we're dealing with. Our current Supreme Court makes me very depressed. And uh, you, I know that when you're fighting these different agencies, when you're trying to get things done, you, that must be in the back of your mind that if this gets all the way up to the Supreme Court, um, it's going to depend on those nine people to decide on this. Do you think about that at all? Does that bother you? Do you think that these, the, the Supreme Court we have is up to the task? I think it's impossible not to think about it, but also the, the main thing is to just make the best legally sound arguments you can make. The Supreme Court can only issue cert on a small number of cases, meaning the Supreme Court gets like a lot of requests for, you know, for certificate, you know, for cert, they, they, they don't, they're not able to listen to all of them, right? Like it's like, it's like being someone who's handling Bruce Springsteen's like VIP tickets, like he or she can't accept all those requests. So, you know, you just do the best you can to put the best legal arguments out there because maybe it makes it all the way to SCOTUS, maybe it doesn't. Um, but you have to be on record doing the best you can. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a line, um, I'm going to butcher it, but it's from Nelson Mandela, which is that you don't lose. You win or you learn. Like, those are the two options. I feel like we have an electorate that is largely uninformed because we have a system of education that keeps them feeling like they're well-educated. Like, I went to college. I have a degree. But yet, um, the educational system didn't teach them how to critically think, didn't teach them how to work together. They don't know how to have a discussion like we're having. It usually just turns into a, a fight. Um, do you think there's hope in the existing system that we can get to this more educated uh, electorate that you're talking about? Or do you think we have to change the educational system to get there? I think the answer is always going to be we have to change the educational system because I'm, I always think the answer is always you have to change a little bit. Like there's no, you have to run to stand still. I think it is possible. And I think part of it is, anyone who's worked at technology, you guys report on technology, there's no standing still, right? Like you have to know what the new products are that are coming out. There's no, I'm top dog now. I don't have to change. You, the, you, your management systems have to change, your technology has to change. Um, it's the same way with education. I think education is a process and not a state, right? Like whatever degree you have or don't have, like we're not bound by those. You have to continually ask yourself, you know, where am I wrong? Where can I do better? Um, and, and I think that requires, I think, three things. Now we're delving into some weird personal philosophy. Uh, one is it requires intellectual humility saying like, I'm, I don't know everything, I'm not going to know everything, uh, and there's a lot of people smarter than me, right? Two, uh, acquires a, a universal respect, like you can learn from everybody, right? Sometimes, sometimes it's because they're going to teach you because they know something, sometimes it's because they made mistakes and it's their example, and I guess they can learn from you too, from us too. 
Um, and then, and the third is to, and this is the toughest part, right? To get to your point, it's how to uh, disagree without being disagreeable. And again, there's no requirement morally to be polite to like racists, right? Or to, to misogynists. Like there's no requirement that terrible authoritarian people have to be, you know, coddled. Um, but there is, I think, a value in being able to say to someone that you disagree with why you disagree with them and being able to state what it would take for you yourself to change your mind. This is a, this is a challenge for me uh, as well. Like I've got, you know, I have very strong opinions about transportation, about energy, um, and it's really hard to remind myself that, uh, that that can change in a heartbeat. You're constantly out there trying to change policies and laws yeah. to do with EVs, but I think to most people you're talking about something that's like EVs. Like, because most people in this country don't even know what Tesla is yet. Yeah. Like, I think they do, but they don't. Yeah. You tell them it's a car company in California. Oh, where is it? What, what does it do? It's a car company in California. <laughs> you know, like, it, they're just like, don't know what you're talking about. So when you're trying to get laws passed, isn't that hard? You're talking about stuff that isn't the normal stuff that everyone knows about, like taxes yeah. and stuff. Like, how does that... How does that play? I think it's it's a good question, and I think the reason it's a good question is it it relates to, you know, how do people know things or feel like they know things? Like you just said, like people tax, everyone knows about it. I suspect if you talk to a tax specialist, they'd be like, you'd be surprised how much people don't know about taxes, right? And I think it's it's because, like, there's a lot of either old information or misinformation. We'll talk about taxes, like about like how you know what constitutes you know taxation, right? And, and um, and what the value of some of that is. It's the same with EVs. Like it's, there's too much information out there for any one person to know a lot of it. So we rely on gatekeepers, folks that know more, maybe know more to tell us. Sometimes those are good gatekeepers, like you know, you know, your friend who's an expert or your family member who's an expert. Some of them are bad. It's just a meme on Facebook. Like that's a bad place to get information from. And that's, you could say that's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. Because when it comes down to it, like, I don't think we are trying to convince folks that, you know, that we're always right about everything. I think we're trying to get folks to, to experience, um, you know, the kinds of, for example, vehicles they could drive. Like, you, I, could, I could have a fact sheet, you know, this long about electric vehicles, and some of that will be useful and some of it won't. This fact sheet is probably not going to be anywhere near as effective as plopping someone into a good electric vehicle. Um, letting them drive it around, right? Um, and I think that's, it's because I think we're, we're experiential animals. Like we want to experience what we're talking about and, and experience what we're feeling. One of the big things that people uh, fight back to me about when I say that, you know, in 10 or 15 years we'll all be driving electric cars, they go, I got you, you're wrong. Yeah. Our grid can't take it. We can't all plug in at once, buddy. Yeah. And I guess I would ask you that. You must hear that a lot too. Um, our grid is just can't take it. Yeah. I mean, it's not like we're all like kind of coordinating, like waiting and then plugging in at high noon in August and all the ACs are on. For the most part, when you plug in an electric vehicle off peak hours, um, when a vehicle is charging up off peak, uh, not only is it relatively cheap and the grid can completely um, handle like the, the kind of loads that we're seeing, but because it ups the usage for a lot of utilities, depending on how they're set up, because it ups the usage at off-peak times, it actually lowers the costs for everyone on that grid um, to uh, to to buy power. Like it actually is, it is actually saving everyone money, even folks who don't have electric vehicles. Uh, 
if you live in an area and all these EVs are charging up off peak, the school bus is charging up off peak, you've actually got a better and more resilient grid. Um, especially if, you know, down the line, as the vehicle grid interaction becomes better, you know, utilities can start using like those plugged in vehicles, like school bus battery. It's a big battery. It's not, battery. It's not sitting in, it's not doing anything at two in the morning. Right. Use it as, as resilience, as a backup you know, to part of the grid. So the grid, like localized areas may need upgrade. That's not untrue, right? Like it's like saying like, you can't, you can't buy a new car. Your driveway can't handle it. Well, we may need to, I may need to re-asphalt my, my driveway, but that's an independent thing of me buying, you know, a new car. We're now been driving in traffic, Americans have, for decades. Yeah. Yeah. It's just become the life. No one mm -hmm. thinks that there's any solution mm -hmm. for this. But along comes someone like Elon Musk who talks about, well, there's going to be a robo-taxi someday soon, and when that happens, there'll be no car ownership needed, yeah. and so the number of cars on the road will go down, traffic will go down. Yeah. And instead of getting excited about this future, there's so many people out there who get mad. Yeah. And they're like, shut up, that can't happen. Yeah. Not going to happen, and here's 15 reasons why. Yeah. But is that because they're just not allowing themselves to imagine this better reality? I think part of it is lack of imagination. And part of it is like, it's it's hard to get yourself into that position, especially if, you know, we, we love cars. I love cars, right? Like, it's it's weird to think I wouldn't own a car. I mean, if you're someone who loves cars, you have owning a car, you're probably going to own a car. But like, you know, ask a 16-year-old, right, who lives in the city, Ask a 20-year-old, like, how many of them are going to own cars? Maybe not that many. The amount of shift that ride-sharing companies have done has changed the way people approach cars. Um, the uh, the amount of shift that, like, you know, increased transit has done has changed the way people own cars. The fact is that transportation will change. The way people drove in the 20s, 1920s, is not the same that they drive um, in the 2010s. They're really, really different vehicles. And, uh, and I think you'll see that. Um, I just want to ask you a last question, which yeah. is if there's young people watching today or people who want to maybe change careers and they want to get into uh, helping the environment. Um, you've had many jobs in your life. Uh, yeah. Have they all led to this? Is this? Is it helped to be having done many things in your life? Do you have to have followed a certain path to have a job like yours where you're an advocate for the environment? I, I don't think there's one path. You know, you're, we, I work with folks who are scientists, I work with folks who are attorneys. I've worked. I've worked with folks. I work with folks who are like policy, public policy folks. Um, I work with development folks who, you know, who help raise money. If you want to help the environment um, as a career, probably the best thing to do is like learn a lot, like read a lot, stay engaged with it, um, and keep your morale up in it. Because you'll learn more. Um, and as you get into some of the stuff we've all gotten ourselves into, it'll keep your morale up when you realize how deep a hole we are in some places. Um, but it's important to just be good at what you do. It doesn't matter so much that you, there's no one, there's no idealized path. Just be good at what you do um, and try to enjoy it as much as you can. I mean, they're jobs, right? You, they pay you because if they didn't, you would be doing something else. But you should still try to, to get as much joy as you can. Well, Mark, thank you so much for doing what you Thanks. do. Thanks much for being appreciated. on the show. Um, and I'm looking forward to working with you so that you can get us information yeah. that we can get out to everyone watching. Yeah, great. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for watching Now You Know. We work hard to bring you videos about things that we think you'll find useful, but we need to know from you what you want to see, so leave your comments below. Also, don't forget to go over to our Patreon page, where for as little as a buck a month, you can watch our Patreon bonus story every week on Tesla Time News. Thanks again. We'll see you soon.